Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi there, this is Adrian Hernandez from the NIH Collaboratory, and today we're here with uh, Dr. Aaron McKeithen, who's going to reflect on policy and priorities, uh, rethinking university research with state data. Thanks, Adrian. Glad to be here. So uh, you have this interesting uh, life going uh, between um, uh, government and uh, university settings. Uh, what, what do you see as kind of the big problems that could be addressed together, or why are you actually doing uh, that split between uh, university setting and, and, and government? Yeah, it's a good question. It does uh, it, it does bear explaining because I think I'm I'm on a non-traditional path for sure. So I'm uh, by day I'm um, on the faculty of the Department of Population Health Sciences at Duke, um, and by day and night, seemingly I am also on uh, you know working. Uh, largely full-time uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services in Raleigh as Chief Data and Analytics Officer. And uh, this has been a, a, a great experience. About a, I've been doing it for about a year now. And, um, you know, it's opened my eyes to so some important points uh, for those of us who are in the health services research or policy research world uh, as it relates to how we interact with uh, how we interact with state and federal government. So one of the things that you talked about is the, the mission that um, the state uh, government uh, needs help. What, what do you mean by that in terms of needing help from uh, the universities and others? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the most important things I learned, uh, I have learned in the last year, um, and I've, I've had prior experience in the federal government, so I'm sort of relearning this as well, is that you know the typical policy official uh, is preparing for the next legislative hearing, which might be next week, right? They're not thinking about um, studies that they can commission uh, over a six or nine or 12 month period that much they're really thinking about how do we how do we get through the next legislative hearing how do we get our budget uh, how do we you know uh, how do we think about some relatively short-term milestones and of course research uh, takes a long time it can and so there's this sort of gap between the time horizon that, that typically a, a state officials under, and the, the, the analytic needs or, or offers that come in from, from the research community. And so I think one of the things that states need help on is actually de- sifting through evidence to try to help policy community uh, get out of the, 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 the two-week legislative hearing kind of time horizon and to help them think about what are the questions that we ought to be asking of our data uh, that can inform our work now, and I think it has two flavors. Um, number one, uh, the intellectual assets of a university um, come with uh, a lot closer knowledge of the evidence base than any policy domain. So, like, no one in the state government has time to to read all the journals and attend all the conferences, and so there's a a gap there. So, the first question is, where is the evidence? What is the evidence base today in whatever policy domain? And how 
how different is our actual practice in policy relative to that evidence base? So that's a super helpful way that universities can contribute. The second one is to be very explicit about answering the question, what are the things that we don't know the answers to in the evidence base? And what are the gaps? Um, and to, to quote from former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> what are the known unknowns, the things that we actually don't know the answers to, but that are important, uh, that could be important for policy in the near term. So universities can help develop a, uh, what I call an analytic roadmap for states or federal government or other, other units of government by helping them understand what the evidence says today and, and to show where we're in, not in accord with respect to how we do policy against that evidence base. And number two, to, to, to be really clear about what we don't know. And that requires a, a posture of humility from universities. Usually we go to conferences and we tell everyone what we do know, right? We present our paper. Um, but I think states and, and federal policy leaders need as much um, clarity about what we don't know that we can invest in, research in, to, to improve our knowledge and then therefore to in, in improve the degree to which we can, we can make policy decisions informed by evidence. That, that uh, sounds quite interesting. So I, I guess actually having evidence-based uh, policy uh, seems important. What, can you tell me a, a little bit about um, the thoughts on, you know, I, haven't, uh, you know, I didn't realize this, but research methods uh, matter, um, but it may not be the most complicated research methods. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I was reflecting on the fact that literally every week we get an incoming you know, pitch or a request for a meeting from either a researcher or a healthcare organization that wants to show us their new, you know, uh, fancy research method or their algorithm for this or that or their machine learning technique. And, and you know, look, I love that stuff. I care about that. I think it's important. But uh, putting yourself in the mindset of a policy official means actually sometimes, you know, sort of acknowledging that sometimes the simplest research methods are the most important. And I mean simple. Um, I think I mentioned in my uh, presentation the other day that um, Todd Park, who was the the founder of Athena Health, uh, recently came to one of uh, gave a lecture at, at my class at Duke on healthcare value, and he said, "We don't need machine learning in healthcare. The the, the gaps are so big in healthcare that you can see them from space. Uh, what we need, uh, according to Todd, is is histograms and two by two tables." and And I I agree. I mean, I I, I think. There's a role for machine learning and, and more advanced um, research methods and techniques, but um, often, as I tried to visualize the other day, uh, we can start by just counting. You know, here's an example. Um, in 2016, uh, there were almost 17,000 births for which North Carolina Medicaid paid for prenatal care and uh, the delivery, uh, for which those moms did not have the WIC program. They were not enrolled in WIC, which is our, uh, which is the Women's Infants Children Nutrition Support Program. That's a two by two table, right? That's not uh, a black box fancy machine. And that just having that information can help us see the opportunity to apply more rigorous statistical methods to looking at this across time and across different patterns of, 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 of beneficiary and program. 
uh, and to, to build new technologies and the like that can help cross-enroll people in these programs more effectively. But that's, that can often just start with counting and, and uh, having a better feel for the beneficiaries, the programs, uh, the gaps. Um, so we're, I, I just don't think state officials are in a position to be naturally impressed by research methods per se. Uh, they're interested in the degree to which those methods can answer a question and often as is true in life, simple starting simple is often the best way to, to approach it. Well, that, that's really fascinating. That's a great illustration. Uh, the other thing it seems like you were talking about um, uh, was uh, consider the um, the outcome that trying to achieve, or uh, really importantly, what's the policy implications, and so uh, designing things in that context. So. What, can you uh, dive a little more into that? What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I think my, my last year in, in the government has, has reminded me of kind of the way I've approached, for example, writing a paper for a journal. Like you, you write the paper that you're interested in, you have your, your you know, overview section, your method section, the analysis and, and results section, and then you're satisfied that you've done a good job, right? And then it's time to submit that paper uh, for publication. And uh, you think, oh yeah, I should probably add a couple paragraphs on policy implications, right? And, and if, you actually, if you actually just read the policy implications sections and the policy-oriented uh, articles that you see in, in the big journals, they often are, are written almost like that. You, you get a sense that, that there's nothing here I can actually do. It's just statements about, you know, state officials should invest in training or should invest in education, blah, blah, blah. I mean, those are, those are helpful, I guess, statements. But um, what I was talking about and what I think I've learned is uh, the importance of starting the research at the outset, thinking very carefully about the specific policy choices uh, in space and time, you know, like feasible policy choices that... Uh, that the legislator or a secretary of health or what have you um, actually has, and then design the research to inform those specific levers and dials, right? Those those actual choices, not um, not pretending that everything is possible, and and not uh, divorced from knowledge that actually, if you want your research to have a real impact, you actually have to know what the choices are and what the alternatives look like, and and structure the work to be informative to that. Um, and so I think that's just different than the way most of us do policy-oriented research. We write the paper that we are satisfied with and say what we want to say, double-check our math and make sure the editing looks good, and then we kind of bolt on at the end this sort of policy implication. Um, I think we've got it exactly wrong, uh, backwards. We should, we should start from the perspective of understanding the policy landscape and options and then work the paper that way. I think that has a lot more actionable potential, but it does require you know journals being you know receptive to that sort of thing, and 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 um, and uh, researchers being willing to go there. Great. Well, uh, this has been fascinating. So it's uh, quite remarkable to uh, hear someone who is really um, uh, driving uh, data into action. 
uh, through policy and then actually understanding what the implications are. So, Aaron, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. It's been great uh, to hear uh, your views and perspectives uh, combining um, what is needed for developing analytics, um, using uh, important research methods that are simple but impactful for understanding uh, policy implications and actually seeing those results uh, through. So hopefully you can join us uh, in the future again, uh, sharing more results. Thanks. I love that. I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, what we're all learning here. For those uh, hearing this uh, podcast, uh, please uh, be sure to join us for our next podcast, which will also be quite uh, fascinating and informative of things changing in the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.